Thanks for tuning in to the Fried Egg Podcast. This is part two of the Kyle Franz Pod. If you missed part one, check it out on our website or in the iTunes or Stitcher feed. In part two, we discuss golf in the British Islands, the ground game and professional golf, desert golf, and we do our segment of overrated and underrated. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to check out our newsletter, The Easiest Way to Keep Up with Golf. Sign up on our website, thefriedegg.com. And enough of me. Here's part two of the Kyle Franz pod. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So you've uh, you spent an extensive amount of time in the in the British Isles. Um, where would if you were going to do one trip, you know, to we'll say a certain area to see golf uh, and architecture, which uh, which like small area would you focus on? You know, it's pretty hard to argue with the Lothians uh, around around Edinburgh. You know, you get such a, a unique, such a unique uh, string of golf courses you can see there. You know, Mirfield is obviously such a, a great classic course, um, and really just like sturdy architecture that most everybody will like. You know, uh, it kind of lacks to a degree some of the kind of quirky stuff that a lot of us appreciate in, in golf in the UK. Um, but it's just such a great sturdy course. You just really can't argue with it. Uh, as being one of the best courses in the uh, world. And then to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, North Barrack that's just down the road, which, you know, I I would say most of my architectural friends, you know, people that I work with, people like Gil and, and Tom and uh, uh, Bill, you know, they all, all of my friends, I think, to, uh, to a man, would, would rank North Barrack among their favorite courses because you get just so much weird, fun, crazy uh, British architecture. You know, it's a great coastline. It's a beautiful place. But where else are you going to get to play, you know, a whole like like the famous pit where, you know, you're batting your ball out in the fairway and, and having to stop it on a green right behind a rock wall. You know, you get to, you get all the quirk value uh, that, uh, uh, that you can get in a great links golf course architecture over there in, in, in one, one setting there. And then there's a lot of, you know, like great – secondary courses there you know obviously Golan's a, a great old classic uh a couple of courses there um you know Luffness, uh you know great great architecture um Dunbar just down the road is is a really good course that kind of flies under the radar you want to talk about you know under the radar stuff that's a pretty cool place and you know I've always that's that would be the one market that I would love to personally you know jump into as as a restoration architect uh is stuff over there. You know, I spent my year overseas studying golf courses over there, and uh, um, that was the thing that I always kind of thought about as I go to places. How much fun it would be to consult at a at a place like that, Dunbar or uh, or Fraser or what have you. Um, that uh, you know, with just a, a a little help on one hole here, one hole there, one hole there, you could do so. You could turn one of those golf courses into something really, really amazing. They already are really, really good golf courses, but. Uh, um, you know, it would come as no surprise having worked on, you know, uh, uh, the likes of Pacific Dunes and Barnbugle, uh as I started my career. And then having spent all the time overseas in the U.K., uh, um, I'm a huge fan of Link's architecture. So it would be fun to, to work on some of those kinds of places over there. You know, and obviously the, uh, the financials of clubs are so different from uh, um, the United States um, that, you know, uh, it would require somebody being really patient and working with a club over a span of probably two decades to actually mm-hmm. get it where they want it to go. But well, it's not like, you know, they have the financials to do a massive, you know, restoration or what have you, um, in a summertime like we do here. Um, so that's where, you know, you know, uh, mid pines, we did, uh, you know, we did the project essentially in house with a bunch of shapers and finishing guys that I brought in, no contractors, et cetera. 
Um, you know, so I've always kind of been having worked on those projects for, for Tom and Bill and Ben, you know, Pacific Dunes, there was no contractor whatsoever. Uh, I've always kind of tried to build my business model that I could potentially do, you know, projects kind of, kind of like that someday. What? Um, um, but, uh, so, yeah, that's really my favorite, favorite region of the country is, is there. It's well, all good. <laughs> I mean, I have a hard time saying that over some of the places we mentioned earlier with Dornick and Barora and, and Tain and, and Gulsby up north. Um, but when you, in terms of world-class architecture, it's pretty hard to beat the Lothians. Pretty good. With uh, regards to restoring courses in, like, Scotland versus, like, so in America we see, like, a lot of the same problems with, like, overgrowth of trees, shrinkage of greens, you know, narrower fairways. What are, what are some of the issues that you see in Scotland and Ireland and the U.K. at courses? That, are they different or, or pretty much the same? Uh, it's all the same game. It's, it's, it's about the particulars that you're working on. You know, I think the thing that I saw probably the most is it was always clear to me that there there was a lot of golf courses that I went to. There was like maybe one or two greens where it was obvious it was probably like the coolest and craziest green in a golf course. They didn't be kind of flattened out and changed uh, over the decades uh, where it had just been kind of flattened out. It was something very bland and uh, um, was not really indicative of, of what it was laid out to be. You know, a lot of those craziest greens over in the U.K. where it's just something where it was on the ground, that's what worked, and they started bowing it there, you know. Uh, and, uh, and it had been kind of changed over time. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, bunker missing here, bunker missing there. Um, or, you know, a lot of the times, you know, it's just as simple of, of moving a fairway around a little bit, you know, just mowing another 10 yards to the right, uh, moving in, you know, a 10 yards from the left where it is being mown as fairway. Uh, or expanding them back out, narrowing them down in the right place. It's just, you know, simple sort of uh, simple sort of stuff. But it, it, in the end, it, it ends up making all the difference kind of in the world a lot of the time. So, um, And also, you know, in terms of, of bunker style, you know, there's a place in southern England I was just looking at on the Internet a couple of months ago that was an old, back to the previous architect that we talked about, uh, Colt. Uh, it was... Uh, a course that he had done on the coast that was uh, on more uplandy sort of ground. It wasn't sand dunes and a Lynx golf course, but uh, more of like uplandy sort of terrain with big sort of like pebble beachy sort of cliffs. And, uh, you know, the bunkers had all been kind of turned into uh, um, more like simplified renditions of, of what they was originally supposed to look like. You know, obviously, for anybody that kind of knows Colt's history, built some really impressive bunkers, really flashy and uh, visually attractive. Stuff, and that stuff had just been kind of wiped out on the golf course over the span of, you know, 100 years. Uh, so that's probably the main thing is, you know, restoring bunker style, uh, which is something that just doesn't really happen over there. And, uh, I mean, some of this happened the last 10 years or so, but I think if, if somebody did a really great restoration, like, say, in London, uh, one of those great old, you know, Colt courses, I think it would probably break down the door to doing a lot more all over the, uh, the city and the region. Um, and the same the same holds true for the uh, for the coastline in Britain. You know, I think uh, um, you know if uh, if you did a couple projects here, a couple projects there, I think it'd probably open the doors to doing a lot of great restoration work like that. And, uh, and it's really kind of due for it. You know, I think that's one thing that uh, hasn't been uh, um, again. There's been a few projects the last few years that have kind of touched on that in the UK, but it's still restoration is still kind of a uh, a new and blossoming uh, conversation over there, where it's something that obviously we've been working very hard on in the states for the last, you know, ten and fifteen years, twenty years, mm-hmm. almost thirty in some cases. So, so uh, we got a ton of uh, questions from listeners. I wanted to get to a few of them before we uh, get you out of here. Um, so, uh, car for the course had a good one here very few if any desert courses are lauded as being architectural gems how would you approach a project in palm springs or like scottsdale area hmm. that's a very good question yeah hmm you know i think that i think the thing that that i have not seen yet uh on a golf course out in the desert, which I think would be very, very cool to see, would be something with a little bit more, a little bit more like Pinehurst Number Two or St Andrews influence, where uh, the golf course 
relies less on bunkering and more on really, really fun shots on and around the greens. You know, I think I worked on Stone Eagle for, for Tom mm-hmm. uh, 10 or 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I guess. And then, I, you know, I've been, to, I've been to a couple of Bill and Ben's projects in the desert, and uh, I, think that, I think those projects were all great. Uh, we built some really cool stuff at Stone Eagle, and I, and I know that Bill and Ben built some great stuff there. But I think that's probably the one little missing link um, is that uh, um, I would love to see more palms in, or uh, sorry, uh, Piners number two, St. Andrews sort of contouring, uh, and even to degree like like Prairie Dunes, where you get some really really good, interesting kind of shot making and recovery shots around the greens. You know, tight mo and uh, uh, a lot of interesting, fun kind of shots and. Uh, um, stuff that almost like kind of forces you to play ground shots. You know, the hard thing with uh, with building cool architecture in the desert is a it requires quite a bit of water, obviously, and b the turf types that you're going to have are always going to be not particularly prone to good ground game architecture. Which of course is, you know, when we're talking about Bill and Ben and and and, and uh, Tom and Gil, that's the one thing that I probably should have started with instead of. Uh, ending with is they're all committed to building great classical cool ground game architecture and that's something that i'm always trying to push and uh um but it's hard to do with uh warm season grasses because it's so bushy and uh um you know so green and uh and lush you know uh so i think you'd almost want to like over design features uh you know on projects there and you know more follow-away greens just lots of cool stuff to really get it to where uh you know, people want to try some really fun, interesting, you know, ground shots and, and recovery shots. It's 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 harder harder to uh, harder to do than to just say it. You know, I think one of the things on the Rio Olympics golf course that uh, um, certainly was the biggest challenge was trying to get players to play ground shots and warm season grasses because the ball doesn't really like to bounce that much. In some places, we were successful with it. In other ways, uh, probably not as much as I would have uh, liked to have seen it. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I think I think it's, the key is is just how severe your building features and and how really how really dedicated you are to really really building stuff that really forces people to hit hit some cool crazy shots like uh, like you do in different settings. So. Forcing like guys to hit the ground shots, I I feel like the pros just don't hit them because they don't have to hit them regularly, so they don't have to practice them. Yeah. Exactly, you know. Uh, if uh, if I ever am lucky enough to uh, you know doing you know design work on courses from scratches on my own, I think that's probably the area that I'd probably be exploring to a degree is is uh, you know with the changes in technology in you know, the last twenty twenty five years, it's almost it was almost like some of the cool stuff that we were building was kind of dated the second that it opened for that caliber of player, whereas it still works very well for for average players. You know, there's very few kinds of holes in the world these days that'll make professional level players thinking about you know hitting balls on the uh, on the ground or bouncing around some you know obviously you know the the road hole in st andrews is, is still the timeless example of that but you can see a degree on a hole like you know number five at uh, at augusta you know if the players hit into the rough on the right hand side of that hole they'll start thinking about trying to hit the little skipper shot up onto that little st andrews uh inspired ridgeline green because the you know the hazards off the back side of the green are, are so severe uh, and they'll try and they'll try and bounce it up. You know, uh, I think Oakmont is is great for that, and the fact that you know you have so many fall away greens, and in some cases the greens are so severely falling away from the players. Uh, you know, f- front to back sloped greens that uh, um, the players will are almost inevitably have to give it a go. Like a whole like uh, you know twelve at, a, at at Oakmont, the players have no choice. If you're going for that green, so you have to think about how it's going to bounce onto that green. And even the third shot, so you have to at least be cognizant of the fact that the ball, even with a wedge in your hand, isn't going to spin like it normally would. Um, you know, so I think there's there's some interesting ways to go about skinning that cat. And you know, it's all about how you approach the overall theoretics of what you're shaping, what you're designing, and uh, you know, again, the paradox of scale that uh, that we work with to try and make architecture work uh, wherever we are. So, um, but yeah. I, I think that would be a fun golf course to play in the desert. I would, uh, I would, I would like to play that course today. That would be fun. Yeah. Um, so Pablo Toledo uh, has a question here. 
Thoughts on doing a strict restoration versus a renovation that modernizes and attempts to recreate the original design philosophy and intent. So I repeat that one for me. That was so. So it's like a a true pure restoration. We're putting everything back into place where we saw it on this aerial photo versus a renovation that you know tries to take what the intent was and modernize it for today's game so you know you might move bunkers yep. so yep you know thoughts on each and you know well i think that line is is always getting blurred and i really don't know of i don't think you can be successful in in either format without blurring them together you know i think that uh um i think that to do great restoration work, you really have to put yourself in the mind of uh, the original architect. Um, and, you know, certainly a lot of that is painting by numbers, looking at an aerial and, uh, and seeing what, what the, was on the golf course originally and precisely where everything sat. And, but you also have to take that step back and, and ask the question, well, why? Uh, you know, I think that if, uh, you know, if you went back and, and, and attempted to do restoration by just simply copying pasting, you know, uh, painting by painting by number, you kind of miss uh, that original intent. You know, the game has evolved and changed so much that uh, bunkers inevitably wind up in the wrong spot. Or if, if you're not seeing the whole big picture very clearly, you'll kind of miss the uh, the the end all of what the original hole is trying to do. You know, obviously when we were talking about mid pines earlier, we were talking about you know. Ross's intent with the styling of the holes, and I think the thing that uh, you know, as I alluded to, he tried to make each of his golf courses here a little bit different. Uh, and the best way I can describe the importance of uh, of uh, of really, really studying the original design is um, the differences in courses. You know, here uh, here in Pinehurst, you know, uh, Pinehurst number two is supposed to have big, wide fairways, 50-yard wide fairways, and then on the outside of the holes, you had an extra buffer of another 20 to 25 yards before you got to the edge of the clearing line into the trees. So it was big, big, wide corridors uh, and big, wide fairways, and then you had these big, long runs of, uh, of sand, the famous Sandy hard pan areas on, the each, on each side of the hole. And Mid-Pines' his design philosophy was completely different. Uh, the fairways were big and wide like Piner's number two, but he, for the most part, kind of excluded a lot of those sandy hard pan areas on the edges of, of each hole. Instead of, of having that buffer, it just went right into the woods and the trees. You'd have a little bit of sandy hard pan and wiregrass, but mostly the holes just kind of went right into the woods. And in between the holes, it was very dense, thick, bushy uh, terrain. It would be wiregrass and wisteria and, and all kinds of who knows what else was, you know, growing out in the... Uh, southern jungles of uh of north carolina um so the the idea was that you know piner summer two was meant to be a little bit more of of a resort friendly golf course where it was a bigger wider area the players could find uh their ball and play on where mid ponds was meant to be kind of this uh very uh very intimate setting you know hard golf course uh with the with the tighter clearing lines and uh um the design evolved further uh from number two in that in that category, you know, it has more mid pines has more bunkers front right and front left of the green compared to number two, where most of the holes have quite a bit of bunkering. But there are actually some holes where there's a whole bail side. You know, the first two holes at Piners number two, you can bail completely away into short tight mow areas away from all the bunkering around the greens. Whereas mid pines, there isn't two holes like that in the entire golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea was that you know players could hit shots into the right sections of fairways um, and give themselves good angles past all these front bunkers. You know, if the pin was front left, they could play into the far right-hand side of the fairway for a decent angle. Vice versa, if the pin was front right, they could play to the other side. But to hit it to the good angles, the honey spots on each hole for a good angle in, you had to take on, you know, all that brush and all the nasty stuff that was lapping right at the edge of the fairways, as I was you know, alluding to before. So there was... Uh, you know, to get to the uh, the good angles and strategize for a good player on the tee shots, uh, they had to uh, they had to take on some some nasty stuff. They were kind of taking their life in their own hands. Again, just differences in in philosophy. So when I was working on mid pines as restoration, um, 
all that jungly stuff around the edges of the holes had been removed over the decades to make it more resort friendly. All the trees were still there, so the general philosophy of the course still still kind of held true to the uh, the original design. So a lot of what I had to do was, you know, just kind of uh, stand on the tees and visualize. Well, all that stuff is gone now, but the trees are still there. But again, it feels a lot. There's a lot less in the way of blood pumping do-or-die feel of the tee shots that originally was intended. So what do we need to add to the equation? How do we need to approach adding bunker here or maybe bringing the sandy hard pan areas into the holes a little bit more there? You know, it's, again, just trying to add or approach, you know, the restoration of, uh, of the strategic hazards around the holes in a manner that they would balance out the fact that these other elements have been eliminated over the span of, of, of decades. And, well, it was going to take to get the kind of blood pumping shots back into the equation that uh, that Ross had originally intended. And if I was just looking down at an aerial of the golf course, you'd never figure out any of that stuff. You can't just paint by numbers and be like, well, that's what was there, so that's what we need to do. You know, you need to uh, kind of put yourself in the head of what Ross would have been standing there looking at in 1935 and uh, the decisions that he would have been making to, uh, to uh, you know, lay out the holes exactly to get the blood pumping kind of shots that, that he wanted. And so that's how I really, you know, approach restoration is, is that, you know, uh, you got to get out in the field and you got to stand there and kind of visualize what it would have been like to have a hickory in hand a hundred years ago. Yeah. And what do we need to do to make that all connect today? You know, so, uh, um, sometimes you wind up in a scenario where, you know, you can just simply paint by numbers, uh, where it's, purely restoration uh but also you know getting it to to fit and to work and and uh um to be appropriate for modern play requires you know making making adjustments and that too is restoration so at the end of the day it's all the same game uh um you're all just you're just trying to get to where the uh the architecture matches up and plays as well as it did today, as it did originally, or even better. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a good good answer to that question. I I, I think that's uh, that's the way you got to do it. because it, so much has changed. Um, so absolutely a long a long explanation, but uh, it really does arrive at the at the point. You know, uh, you gotta you gotta get in the heads of the original architects and uh, and figure out the details. So if you could restore. We'll just say one, you know, municipal um, or like a public access course that you you don't know of having a consulting architect. So you know, we avoid any you know beef. What what uh, what course would it be? And this is from Andrew Bailey. Hmm. I don't know. I probably I probably mentioned a lot of them in mm-hmm. my. Uh... Uh, you know, just discussing. Uh, I guess you know, had the UK courses. So yeah, yeah, you know, British British golf courses. Yeah. Um, in terms of the of the United States, um, I don't know. You know, uh, one that always just pops to mind uh, is. Uh, um, I'm having a brain meltdown. I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head. Uh, uh, there's a place in Portland, southeast Portland, uh, that's uh, uh, it's an old H. Chandler Egan golf course uh, that that I always was a big fan of growing up. You know, uh, um, but there's there's many many prime examples of uh, of great courses in that category. You know, if I if I had ten minutes to kind of think about, it, I'm sure I could think of some even right here in uh, um, in North Carolina. Um, I wish I could remember the name of that golf course. It'll come to me here in a sec, uh, in Portland. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of places, you know, just neat old places that are, uh, um, you know, again, great classic architects that really have a lot of potential. The land is still very good. And nobody's really kind of broken broken anything. Um, would be fun to work at. And, you know, I mean, especially I think you probably would uh, uh understand immediately just from the the conversation today that uh you know, the fact that i grew up on a public golf course it's always made me really uh intrigued with with doing great uh public golf course restoration you know or just great public golf in general i mean that's what really uh you know intrigued me the most about working on the uh 
the Olympics course in Rio for Gil was the fact that, uh, of course, it was cool to be in, involved in a project where I was going to hold the, the Olympics and the first Olympics in over 100 years. But it was also, I think, equally as, as important to me that it was going to be the first public golf course in Brazil. And one of the first like great examples uh, in South America of a big tournament venue that people could go and play. Um, so, you know, having grown up on a public golf course, public golf is, is really important to me. Um, so really any place, uh, you know, that, uh, that, you know, has just great old bones, great architecture, uh, would be, would be fun to, to work on, work on, uh, for a, uh, for a, uh, public benefit. East Moreland is the golf course I was thinking of in Portland. I knew that was going to come to me eventually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm putting you on the spot. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's, that's a cool part of the Olympic courses. And, and it looked like, it, you know, they just had the Latin American tour was down there, and it looked like it was in good shape. So that's, that's really good. Yeah, that yeah, really seems to be going fine. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I grew up on golf courses in the Northwest, you know, kind of like that, beyond the one that I even, you know, where I, I played every day. I, you know, there was a, you know, one golf course that, uh, that I really liked playing as a kid was this little Lynx golf course uh, on the Oregon coast called Gearhart. Um, that uh, it was a Chandler Egan effort. It, it was originally laid out by an old Scotsman out of the dunes, but uh, he'd done work on the golf course. And uh, um, also, you know, it's a club, but uh, Astoria is right up the road from there. It's a neat old dunes golf course. Um, so, you know, there's little cool places all over the place that, uh, um, that it would be great to do, you know, restoration work over a span of time that would be practical for them. It's, you're not going to put them out of business, uh, but uh, really could, you know, take them to a, an extra level and, and expand their, uh, you know, potential, uh, potential, uh, um, yeah, to you know, be, uh, make business. money. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, better, you know, you've got, yep. to, that's what they need to invest in. It's their asset. You can't just let it go to, to, you know, shit over, you know, the course of time is you got to invest and, and make it better. Exactly, and there's been some great examples of that, that that have gone on around the country. You know, I haven't been to it yet myself, but I'd like to go see it. Uh, a place called Georgie Wright in Boston, which which looks fantastic. You know, and they've been doing just that. Yeah, I've been working to try and improve it the last the last decade or so, and it's a, a great old classic. You know, Ross course. You want to talk about you know one that flies under the radar? It, it looks fantastic. I really need to get it. Get over and check it out sometime, and that's that's a prime example. You know, uh, there's there's some courses around the country that were you know again laid out by by great architects that uh, um, that you know with a good practical plan. You know, especially that's where the design build philosophy comes together uh, to uh, um, to uh, make projects practical for them. Is you know by removing the you know uh, exorbitant outside contracted costs and doing you know, projects in a practical manner. It's it's much it's more stressful on the architects to do it that way. But that's what we're here for. You know, uh, is is to get the right product for the right price. And uh, um, so I really look at the next twenty years uh, in the United States as being a uh, you know a kind of watershed moment for that. You know, restoration has certainly been a uh, a great uh, a great development in the club club scene the last twenty and thirty years. Um, and it's great to see that it started to, to shift through to uh, public golf in places, and uh, hopefully that uh, that trend continues. It's something that you know, again, having been involved or been a, a public golf person my whole life uh, would be uh, enormously rewarding mm-hmm. to, to be involved with. So. Yeah, this I, I kind of think needs to happen too. It's, it's some, you know, so every you know, so many people I have on the podcast grew up playing public golf. I grew up playing public golf, and it, it's like that is so important is to have, you know, the better the golf courses are to play, like the more people you're going to get to play, um, and get Absolutely. people hooked. It's so, uh, we do this overrated, underrated segment. So, you know, I give you something and you gotta say if it, if you think it's overrated or underrated, there's no properly rated. Um, <laughs> okay. So, um, so we'll start with, uh, 1920s, uh, Donald Ross. Okay. 
And am I supposed to name a course or just, uh, just in general, over it under it? In general, was you know he has he has kind of three different uh, you know distinct time periods of his design from the tens to the twenties and thirties. Was nineteen twenties Donald Ross overrated or underrated? I would say absolutely underrated. All right. Um, what do you think about the other ones? Is there one that was overrated? You know, I think that I think that golf course architects are interesting. You know, some of them some of them arrive on the scene and uh, uh, they have all their best ideas and they throw them out there and uh, and that's just simply kind of the 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 career path that they take. You know, is uh, their early work is is their best. You know. Uh, um, a lot of good prime examples of that. And then other architects have a tendency to just get better and better and better and better over the span of their careers. And I think Ross was definitely in the latter category. You know, uh, his work was always good. But, uh, um, you know, when I look back at the the history of Piners Number 2, there's there's two things that come to mind. How great it is to, today and how great it's always been, but also how much it evolved, you know, uh, I have never seen an aerial or a ground photo of the golf course between 1935 and 1907 uh, where it was exactly the same. He was constantly, constantly tinkering with it. Um, and uh, the style was completely different on all of them. You know, like the original Piners Number 2 was really severe. There was like, you know, uh, I'm sure for a lot of your listeners, they'd be familiar with uh, – you know, Hell's Half Acre at Pine Valley, this big famous hole in the world that you have to cross in your second shot of the, uh, the seventh hole. Um, well, that's kind of what Pinehurst Number 2 was like originally. Instead of having these big, you know, clearly defined sweeping fairways that begin at the start of the hole and go all the way, the very the playable aspects that we were talking about earlier, you know, he had like these big stoppages in the fairways where it would just go into like sandy hardpan and native areas for for a stretch, and then it would pick back up. The fairway would start again on the other side. So a lot of kind of hills, half acre sorts of uh, sort of stuff out there. Um, it was really hard. You know, it's easy to see why his original design number two was pretty uh, pretty controversial. And you know, I've been helping a bit on the Piners number three course uh, the last year. You know, uh, they changed a couple of holes to kind of make way for Gill's par three course. And that kind of sort of evolved into, you know, doing some other work around the golf course. You know, myself and, and Kai Golby and Blake Conant, all three of us kind of did a little bit of different periods of stuff on the golf course the last year, and uh, um, which obviously, you know, has put in my hands a lot of the time, uh, uh, you know, the original area for the golf, aerial for his original design, and, and it's really very severe. You know, a lot of Pine Valley-ish kind of stuff in places mm-hmm. out there. Um, now, whether that's that's good or bad or underrated, overrated, I don't know. But it was a lot different, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think that I think his career did take a nice a nice uh, turn when he decided to start doing more playable stuff that would be more attractive to to more normal people. Uh, um, so I think that he had really fallen into a really nice uh, really nice groove with the stuff that he was designing by the the twenties and. Uh, and especially the you know as you got towards the end of his career, I think that Piner's number two is is ranked as best course for a reason. You know, it, uh, it's 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 all the different little elements that he threw in his design style throughout his career, combined with the more playable elements uh, that he kind of evolved to um, to arrive at his best course. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, the the 1910 stuff or the earlier stuff is. Uh, um, is, is yeah, is better or worse? It's just a little bit, uh, a little bit different. You know? He's he's like a fine wine. He got you know, as he as he aged, he got more sophisticated and uh, fuller. Absolutely, absolutely. But that's not to say that the early ones were pretty darn good too. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, you know, I think that that's the thing that I personally hope that uh, um, that will kind of show its way through in some of the other things going on here. You know. Uh, um, I would love to see Gill kind of throw some of that into uh, you know his work on Course Four, just as a as a complete curveball and departure to uh, you know the work that uh, we did on Number Two, the work that uh, that I've done on on Mid Pines and Pine Needles. Um, you know, uh, um, 
I've definitely adhered more to the later uh, period of Ross's work because I've always genuinely felt like that was the best period of, of his work here. But that doesn't mean that you can do some really interesting things with uh, with his more uh, you know uh, controversial and zany style stuff that he did uh, during the 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 early portion of the of the century. It'd be pretty cool to see. So who knows? Mm-hmm. See what Gil does. Um, all right, we'll get to the next one here. Uh, Volcano Par Threes from Tom Smith. Overrated, underrated. Hmm. I suppose it, it depends on the format, but I am, uh, I, I for one am a big fan. You know, I would be, I would be hard pressed to say that there's, there's not a better hole on any of the golf courses that I'm concern, currently consulting at than the, uh, the 11th hole at the Country Club of Charleston, which, for anybody who has uh, played in the Azalea, which is kind of a well-known uh, amateur event down in the southeast, which is at, at Country Club of Charleston every year, um, the, the holes are redan, or reverse redan. You know, it's, uh, um, so all the, uh, the kind of classic elements of uh, you know, diagonal green with severe back left bunkers or right, you know, depending on if it's a reverse redan or not. But in the case of Country Club of Charleston, it's, it's kind of a 45-degree angle green from front left to back right with these incredibly deep bunkers front right and incredibly deep back left it's basically it reminds me more of like a charles banks design hole where it's uh you know one of the classic rainer mcdonald template redans but it's it's just absolutely jacked up to the maximum in terms of difficulty uh and it's been a famous hole for that reason for a long time there's been many a player in the azalea that has actually been trying to hold a lead that just laid up on it and put it up onto the green uh so it's that severe of a uh, of a hole, you know. So I I love any kind of any kind of green and green site where you, you get on a par three where you're kind of jacking it up into the air and uh, and really leaving the players with some really severe question marks if they uh, if they miss the green, and especially the strategy involved with the hole, like uh, like what I was just describing. You know, uh, um, the history of the hole is actually kind of uh, kind of interesting. It uh, there's evidence that the uh, that the big mound, you know, Charleston's flat. You know, uh, there's no features naturally there, and uh, the big mounds and features on the property are rumored to, to uh, go all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, the British had, uh, uh, when they ensieged uh, uh, Charleston, built like all these big uh, things that they would, you know, fortifications, redoubts is what they were called. That it, it appears that that's probably what the green side originally was. Um, so, uh, you know, it's kind of some interesting history to, uh, to wind up at a, a very severe golf hole. Um, you know, one hole that, uh, that I always kind of come back to is, uh, having been, uh, you know, influential in, in Ross's careers is the second at Dornick, which I've heard varying degrees of the, uh, you know, you want to talk about like a volcano green, uh, it falls away completely on, on three sides and, uh, with a false front on the, the front portion of it. And, uh, um, you know, I've, I've heard varying degrees that Ross was involved in the construction of it, uh, you know, other, under John Sutherland at Dornick, and originally he wasn't all that excited about the idea of what the hole was going to be like. Um, don't quote me on that because I've just heard it in varying degrees, but that when they finished the hole, he thought it was so cool that it was like the light bulb went off for him. And, and I think that one thing you see in Ross's work everywhere is uh, – um, is the willingness to, to build a green site with a really severe fall off off the back. And uh, um, even going as far as to place a green site on a downslope and just pushing dirt out and out and out, building bunkers and pushing it out until you finally wound up with a really severe fall off off the rear side of it. And um, I think that was probably very influential in his career. That, that singular green site, because you see that all over the place on Pinehurst number 2, whether it's you know the famous eighth green where, you know, John Daly had his meltdown where he hit it over the green and swatted his ball because he couldn't quite get it back up onto the green. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ross did that all the time, and I think it comes back to you know those kind of those kind of philosophics, you know. Um, and what you get out of it is uh, you know when you have holes with such severe fall offs on the backside like that, it really does get you kind of thinking back to to basics, you know. Maybe I should wind up short of the screen and take that that mistake out of play, or maybe even just try and bounce it up on the green where I just barely barely run my way up onto the green, uh, taking the aerial shot that might land on the green and go running off the backside or fly over out of play. You know, so I'm a big fan of, uh, 
uh, you know, green sites that are, you know, kind of jacked up like that. Um, and, you know, having done the Rainer McDonald uh, restoration that, that I have done, you know, I'm always going to be a sucker for the for the famous shore holes, you know. Uh, yeah. and some of the best ones uh, are always going to be kind of like that, you know, whether it's, uh, um, you know, like Camargo is like a great example, you know, mm-hmm. I mean. That's about as that's about as jacked up and a volcano-ish as you're ever going to get right there with the uh, with the severity around all all four sides. So a big it's, fan. It's amazing how easy it is to make a bogey on one of those holes just by hitting a hitting a good but not great shot. I mean, you just get these putts that are just brutal, and I I think that's so cool because it's it's just straight like it's a test of your wedge game. Like if you hit it in the right spot, it's an easy birdie, but if you just miss barely or play safe, you, it's going to be really hard to make par. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, one of the features, funnest features that I've restored is is uh, eight at Mid Pines, mm-hmm. uh, which is a green exactly like that. You know, I think it, it's just right out of the two at Dornick uh, uh, influence uh, that uh, that Ross that Ross got from that hole. You know, the green is just. It's on a down slope, and he just took a bunch of dirt. You know, it's obvious that they went 20, 30 yards up the fairway, just started shoving dirt until they wound up with this tiny little precipice of a uh, you know volcano green on the down slope. And uh, if you go over, it runs down into this sandy, bunkery native area patch behind the green. That's uh, um, needless to say, no fun at all to try and get up and down from there. You know, I've had a, a standing offer for anybody that I've been playing with for three years now, I guess, since the restoration, uh, that anybody that gets over that green into that hazard and can get up and down uh, free beer on, on Kyle. And it hadn't happened yet. The closest was, uh, you know, Pat McGowan, who uh, is part of the family that owns the resorts here and, and handles a lot of the teaching and, and whatnot. And he was, you know, 77, I believe, PGA Tour Rookie of the Year. And uh, he was as close as anybody has gotten without it's uh those kind of holes are really fun, you know. When you finally make a birdie on a hole like that, uh, that's something you talk about. Uh, that's, that's the kind of stuff that you remember at the end of the year, uh, uh, no matter what, and the kind of shot that you, you remind yourself or, or bring up, uh, you know, chatting with friends for years after that. So, yeah, yeah. that style of hole. Memorability um, is important with golf. Um, Alistair Philp has uh, overrated, underrated split fairways. I think that uh that's almost a that's almost a trick question. You know, I think that I think that split fairways are an absolute fantastic design feature. Uh but it's all about the implement, implementation and about uh doing the uh doing the design of the hole properly, you know. Um I would love to, you know, if I'm ever doing, you know, design on my on my own uh uh, from scratch, I would love to try stuff like that, you know, uh, especially, uh, you know, kind of breaking holes up a little bit more that way. Um, you know, you don't really see a lot of that. Um, you don't really see a lot of people trying it and actually really, really working out well. Where do you want to, you want to play to each side. You know, a lot of the time it just sort of winds up to like, well, I'm going down that side and that's where I'm going forever. Maybe if I have some reason to play to the opposite fairway, uh, I might try it every once in a while, but the key is just get getting it all to work. Um, but there's also been some pretty poor examples of that over the last uh, 20 and uh, 20 and 30 years, you know, um, to where it was, they tried to do multiple fairways and uh, it was just added expense that, you know, again, for the reasons we were kind of talking about, it just didn't quite work out. There was no reason to play to that side or it wasn't, the risk actually wasn't worth the res- reward or, uh, uh, or it was just impractical and it becomes, when you get into that category, it becomes very expensive maintenance. You know, it's maximum expenditure for almost no gain. So, uh, I suppose the answer to the question is: if it's a really good architect that knows what they are doing, absolutely. I think it's something that we should be exploring even a little bit more. Um, uh, whereas, if it's if it's in the hands of somebody that doesn't quite know quite how to implement that, it's probably money that's better left unspent. <laughs> Um, it's, yeah, it, I mean, it, it forces people to make a decision too, which is always good. You know, it puts yeah, a little yeah. doubt, am I going the right way? There's a great one yeah. on, on, at Holston Hills, a Ross course, that eighth hole, I think, or no, seventh yep. hole, the par five, um, yep. where 
you know, if you if you want to play aggressive, you go up the left, but you got to hit a really good tee shot to get it up there. And uh, you know, the safe play is right, but you're blind and it's longer. Um, but you know, it's a lot easier to hit. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, again, I think it's something that uh, that I think we should, you know, if it's done right, we should be trying to explore it. I think it's a really, really cool idea. Um, you know, I don't remember what it was for, but it was a couple of years ago. Doak, you know. He did basically like a raffle, you know. He, he sent out to a bunch of the guys who are, were either working for him or had worked for him. Uh, you know, he was just asking what would uh, what would be some cool different ideas to try on a project on a on a flat piece of land, and uh, and that's what I came back with was uh, you know uh, I spent you know maybe an hour or so just sort of like sketching around and trying to think of well, what would be some good ways to uh, do some multiple fairway sort of stuff on a flat piece of ground to uh, to add some uh, some serious variety into the equation and uh, um, and the more I kind of sketched around on it, it was like the you know it's not something that was the first time I'd done that before. Uh, but it, it, it reminded me uh, that, uh, you know, that would be a pretty pretty nice way to attack certain kinds of pieces of land where you don't really have a lot of topography. So yeah. Um, yeah, You worked on Stonewall North? Yep. So I, I played the mid-am out there. and um, Oh, nice. It, it, it reminds me, like, the split fairway is almost, you almost got, guys almost did that on, like, the 15th there where you have the center, the center line bunker kind of acted like Absolutely. That. And Absolutely. For those that haven't seen it, that course is it, it, this fairway is ninety yards wide, and they have like a a, fair, a fairway bunker right in the middle that's probably two yards wide, and you know it's tiny. But it we're playing the practice round. And I'm playing with two of my buddies, and we we all look at it and like what what the hell are we supposed to do here? If you play left of it, it there's some woods on the left, so you know. And but that's a much better angle if you play right of it. It's much a longer hole, and you have a really bad angle into a wild green. And, you know, we all looked at each other and said, let's just, I think we just hit it right at it. And sure enough, I'm playing in the tournament, and I hit, like, one of my best drives of the day, and it just lands right in the middle of it because I hit it right where I was <laughs> <Yeah>. aiming. <laughs> and it's just like that. But, you know, we did you know, I didn't make a decision, so I got penalized for it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, like... Three at Pacific Dunes is always a hole that I come back to in that category. You know, well, two and three obviously have the center line hazards on the golf course, but three is really more of a, you know, more of a full split fairway sort of arrangement with the bunkers that kind of stretch all through the middle. And what, I mean, that was that was something that always, you know, like really I marveled at. And the design is, is there were some really cool, fresh ideas that, that Tom threw to the equation out there. Um, while it was still all practical for the average player, but what a what a fun hole and what a uh, what a great par five to really like put it on you right from the tee shot that you've got to you've got to have it together. I'm either I'm either going down the left hand lane where I'm really going to have a legit shot at getting uh, uh, to the green um, in two, or I'm playing right and I'm playing safe the uh, the whole way, you know. Uh, and you know that was what I thought was really cool and 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 really really fresh about it was the fact that there was a a a solid effort right from from the tee to make you force force you into a clear decision whether you're going to simply be playing playing uh conservatively the whole way down the hole very very cool way to uh to approach it and that's where you know when i was referring to multiple fairways or whatnot i was thinking more in terms of having fairways completely disconnected from each other whether it's a you know uh you know, some sort of creek or uh, or ditch or you know, yeah. running, like, wrapping sort of bunker thing. Like uh, uh, really at, full. Eight at um, Riviera. Has exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, you know, uh, that's. I was more kind of uh, referring to something like that, but you know, again, it, it all goes back to the same point. You know, centerline hazards and, and forcing people to make decisions, very very quick decisions and execute is is really it's so much fun you know uh it's just great architecture and uh um whether it's in a uh a more uh you know uh subtle format like a hole like three or two at pacific dunes or uh or you know the other holes we were describing you know uh so i, I think it would be fun to explore more the uh the uh the former you know where you're you're really separating sections of holes and to, and maybe maybe people trying to uh you know really uh 
really figure things out and uh, make some really good concrete decisions. Uh, I think there's, I think there's something that uh, that uh, definitely can can go uh, even a little bit more aggressive format in that category. But again, it all has to come back to whether it's actually practical and you can actually make the strategy of the holes work um, and not uh, not be kind of a three dollar bill. Yeah, so much of golf uh, architecture, so much of the strategy is driven from the green back, you know, and right. being able to force strategy off the tee shot and off of a specific tee shot is it, it, it's cool because it's it's different and like with everything, golf architecture variety is so important. Exactly, you know, and, and as we were discussing, you know, right from the very opening of the podcast, I think that. Uh, you know, we always kind of wonder is how much do normal players really understand, like the little clues we try to give them and, and the strategy we try to create. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of great architects are just simply about being able to do that and not make it too for confusing for people to figure out. You know, I remember Tom having said one on something to the effect that uh, if it takes more than two sentences to explain it, then it's probably too complex. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, I think it, I think when you I think when you start talking about multiple fairways and, and multiple different routes and all those kinds of things, I don't think there's a person under the sun that doesn't figure that out immediately. You know, they're like, well, these are clear options to me. These are clear strategy uh, decisions that I have to make. You know, uh, I think it makes a there's there's a discussion we made there that it, it makes it a little bit more accessible, uh, architecture a little bit more accessible to uh, people that aren't accustomed to. Uh, to learning the complexities of, well, I've got a bunker front right of the green here. There's a bunker on the left-hand side of the fairway. You know, uh, most people don't get the simple stuff, but it's when you start to get into the more complex stuff that, that people tend to notice maybe a little bit less. And, uh, um, you know, again, uh, multiple fairway stuff is is uh, as obvious and interesting as it gets. So certainly something to be said for the accessibility of going that route design-wise. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so, Hey, I, I think we've taken up enough of your time. We, thank you so much for uh, being so generous with it. And, um, you know, we, uh, we appreciate it. I feel like we just scratched the surface. We could have talked for five more hours, but we don't want, we don't want to take up your whole afternoon. So, um, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, we'll look forward to hopefully having you on again in, in the, in the future. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dan. It was a lot of fun. Uh, glad to come on, and I've been a big fan of, uh, of your podcast for, for a while, so uh, uh, fun to, fun to uh, come on and contribute. Thanks yeah, again. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Kyle.